Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 15 through 22. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make you overseer, your overseer's peace and your taskmaster's righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Let me uh, get situated here. Yeah, and before we start, let me just uh, pay, make an extra special highlight to a couple of the announcements. One is that if you are looking for a way to get plugged in, check out this brochure. It uh, gives a description of each of the ministries that we do and the way that we serve God and his kingdom here in Philly. And uh, there's some ways on the back even uh, to talk about, you know, if you don't know how you're gifted and how you'd like to serve, they talk about the different kinds of giftings and um, where you might fit in. So use this as a guide, as a way to get plugged in and, and uh, join among us as we serve God's kingdom here. Also know that we're, the elders and I are really um, moved and uh, convicted by the Holy Spirit and um, excited about our month of prayer that's coming up where we learn to pray together and we emphasize prayer as a church and learning to pray as a church together. And we spent yesterday uh, morning praying for every one of you by name. If you're in a home meeting, you're listed by name there, and we spent time praying for you specifically. So um, keep in touch with your home meeting leader and your elder and deacon over your home meeting because we're taking those prayer requests seriously and we're uh, interceding for you just as Jesus intercedes for us. And together we're going to do that starting in November as well. Uh, Thank you for going with me through the important things in the gospel. What we did in the fall is we said, we're going to do an eight-week series, and we're going to coordinate it with our home meetings, and we're going to look at uh, different aspects of the gospel that are essential to spirituality, essential to gospel spirituality and faith. And we've been saying that just as a bomb needs a detonator to have the power of its explosive released into the world, so our spirituality needs the gospel to be released with power into the world, into our own lives, into our own hearts, into the lives of those around us, and particularly into our city, which is what we're going to talk a little bit 
about today in contrast with the, uh, the city of God. It's an exciting series. There's a lot of challenge. I've talked with uh, many of you offline. I know that um, it's been challenging to think of the gospel in terms of grace. Many of you have grown up thinking of the gospel as um, thinking of religion as a series of checklists. Christianity is a series of checklists that you check off in order to keep God pleased. And the gospel would say that Jesus is in your place and he has pleased God on your behalf and you're in him. And so we've looked at the ramifications for that, for living in Philadelphia, for our own hearts and the way that we're motivated to do things and the idols that we carry with us, community. We looked at all manner of things. And this is our last week. And what I want to do is start off directing your thoughts from the home study. There's been a home study portion each week that's available for you to read prior to your home meeting. And let me, let me begin by reading some of this to you. So in your home, home study this week, you read about various ways that Christians have related to and live in dominant culture that does not share Christian beliefs. Let me say that again. You've You've read about various ways that Christians are related to and live in a dominant culture that does not share Christian beliefs. And here are some of the attitudes that Christians have maintained. Uh, listen for those that you've encountered. Now, I'm not going to be arguing for any one of these, but listen to see if you've encountered these as you try to figure out what does it mean to live out of the gospel in a context where most of the people around you don't believe that. Attitude number one, assimilating the city. And here, Christians simply give in and adopt the dominant culture's values and worldview. And the goal is to blend in and lose any distinct identity as a Christian. Attitude two is this, reflecting the city. Reflecting the city. Christians keep some aspects of Christian faith in practice, but they adopt the more fundamental values and worldviews of the dominant culture around them. Faith is for Sunday services and does not shape the way that we actively live. Lifestyle is fundamentally no different from anyone around us. And thus, we're just a subset of the dominant culture if we, if we end up reflecting the city. Here's attitude three. Attitude three is despising the city. Maybe you've encountered this. Many Christians will respond to the prevailing culture with superiority and hostility. They feel polluted by the presence of unbelieving schools and unbelieving entertainment and unbelieving arts. And some take a more passive approach and withdraw from any real interaction, just announcing and bewailing the moral decay with others aim. Some of, the, some of this group also aim to acquire cultural power. Attitude four is ignoring the city, and Christians respond not with too much uh, pessimism, but too much optimism. And they expect a miraculous sweeping intervention by God, which will convert many or most and explosively transform the culture. Consequently, instead of becoming deeply engaged with the society and people around them, working with others to help the troubles and problems, Christians concentrate completely on building up the church in their own numbers. Christians are pressed to go into ministry but not become playwrights and artists and lawyers and business people. They are just passing through and not becoming involved. Do any of those ring true with you? Have you, have you experienced that? in your experience of Christians as you've lived in the city or you've lived out of the city. There's another Christian attitude that I would like us to consider this morning, and it's the attitude of loving the city. And we're going to take time to define what that attitude looks like as we study our passage. But for now, let's begin by considering this. 
as citizens of Philadelphia, if you're a Christian, you're to live your life as a citizen of the heavenly city that will one day come. If you're a citizen of Philadelphia and a Christian, you're to live your life as a citizen of the heavenly city that will one day come. Now, why? Why should this be done? And that's what we'll look at. We'll look at three things. Because, of the, because the way you live your life here and now should reflect the joy and security, the joy and security and stability of your heavenly city. That's one. You should also reflect the joy of the peace and righteousness of your heavenly city. That's two. And then you should reflect the joy of the knowledge and presence of God in your heavenly city. And that's three, and that's how we're to live. So let's, let's get into it. First, uh, the way that you would live your life here and now should reflect the joy and security and stability, the joy of the security and stability that you have of your heavenly city. Look at verse 17. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. Security, stability, preciousness, and permanence are part of this picture. It's the same picture. You can look later at Revelation 21, 18 through 21, those verses. But it's the same kind of theme there that we also see a picture of the heavenly city, the last city, the new city, the new heavens and earth, and an urban place where we'll dwell. Security and stability, precious permanence. And verse 15, look at that. It says, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. The joy of flourishing. There'll be such stability and such permanence that it will be joyful from age to age. Now, listen, I'm going to talk to you of how I thought about this in my own life as a Christian trying to deal with this because we don't yet have the new heavenly city. We only have that direction towards which we're heading. So this is how I think about it as a Christian. Maybe that'll help you. But we also have to spend some, a little bit of time unpacking joy. And I want to spend some time there because that's important for us too. Uh, Jesus, we'd say in the gospel, is my security, right? Is my stability. Why? Because with, he was without security and stability on the cross, taking the judgment of the Father on my behalf, right? And Jesus is my permanence and my preciousness because he gave his life of eternal and infinite value to secure mine as permanent and precious in his sight. Now that's how I deal with when I think about, okay, what in my life is permanent? What in my life uh, is secure and stable? I think of him. And I rest on that, and that's where it starts. But listen, this prophecy, way back when, and if you cross-reference with Revelation 21, one of the things it does is to take this rootedness into Jesus, and it asks, what does an entire city look like based on these same principles? What does an entire city look like, an urban dwelling look like, based on these same principles of Jesus being central? What does living in a city that is a joy from age to age look like? What does a city that incorporates the cultural achievements of people from every nation, again, Revelation 21, shaped solely by the security and stability and preciousness and permanence of what Jesus has done? What will our endeavors be like? What will health care be like? It says the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What will economics be like? 
What will education be like? What will the arts be like? What will philosophy be like? What will our entertainment and sports be like? What does a city look like that includes full-orbed human flourishing? Where beauty and longing and joy are organically integrated into a dynamic, multicultural, eternal city, fully rooted in and bearing fruit in the gospel in a permanent and ongoing way. That city, that city is said to be a joy from age to age. And the way that you live your life here and now should reflect that, the joy and security and stability of your heavenly city. Now, an illustration. First of all, we need an apologetic for joy. Diana Leaf and I were talking about this this week, and it's really, I'm going to give you a, something like this, something like what happens to us when we try to relate to joy, and then we'll move to joy itself, all right? So what's like it is we're, we're worshiping on the border of North Philly, and in North Philly, kindness is mistaken for weakness or vulnerability, and um, we, I was talking one time with a counselor who talked with a mother who held everything together, generations together, through the sheer force of her will and came for counseling. And the issue was, well, you need to, um, you need to be vulnerable to God in the gospel and, and forgive yourself, and you need, to, you need to see weakness so you can rely on his strength. And the answer was, no way. If I show weakness, my whole world falls apart. People's lives depend on my strength. Show me a gospel. Show me a gospel that begins with strength. And let me go from there. Now, kindness is mistaken for weakness or vulnerability, right? We've all seen that. Joy, in our context, is mistaken for not being with it. Not being cynical enough not being together enough to perceive what's really going on around you. But let me give, you to, let me give it to you this way. The fact that of this passage tells us that the new city where God's people will dwell will be a joy from age to age. So joy is essential to being with it. Joy is essential, not cynicism. You know, it's a lot like this. I read a, a book a while back. It's called The Art of Mastery. It's a short book. And it takes a different kind of approach to mastery, right? And we think, what does mastery look like? And this was written by a photographer who tried to, who, who did an article once to illustrate what mastery looks like. And the issue is, is that when we think of mastery, let's take the sports world. When we think of mastery, we think of like a, a, a scrunched up face and a slam dunk and tension and everything like, you know, that's, that's the picture we have of mastery. There they are doing it. They're, they're masters of it and they're doing it. But he did another pictorial. He said, no, mastery looks very different. What I did was I followed around these people in different walks of life, sports, where they could be a dad, they could be anybody. And mastery didn't look like the, the big moment. Mastery instead looked like a basketball player relaxed and poised and throwing his three, free throw, just relaxed and poised, doing it over and over again, and in the zone, just working the repetition of it. Or a dad who goes to his office every Saturday morning just to catch up on uh, the organization of things and uh, writing letters and making sure their correspondence is up to date, who takes his son along with him, and the son remembers 
that his dad would just get into the zone of making everything just right so that Monday would run well, right? So the face of mastery looks very different. So too, the face of joy, the face of being with it, looks very different than you expect. The city that we'll be a part of through Jesus' effort is going to be a joy from age to age. Don't be cynical at people who are joyful. Don't be cynical at your own joy. Take time and be overwhelmed by the beauty that God has won for you in Jesus. So we're only our best by being fully engaged in living life with joy. The joy and security and stability that is the only way to truly be with it, not cynicism, but joy. So your life in Philly should reflect the joy and security and stability of your heavenly city, but also... The way you live your life here now should reflect the joy and peace and righteousness of your heavenly city. Look at verses 17 and 18. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall be no more heard, no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your wall salvation and your gates praise. Peace and righteousness. In the new city, there's no violence, there's no ruin, there's no destruction. You can see Revelation 21 again for the same theme. Now, here's a question. In what ways can we at Liberty Fairmount be better, a better foretaste of the community of peace and righteousness? In what ways? In what ways? Jesus is our peace, right? Again, beginning with your personal relationship and moving outward to what does a city look like. Jesus is our peace. He took the wrath of God so that we could have peace with God. Jesus is our righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Remember we've talked earlier about the fact that it's in right relationship with God and everything else, but particularly with God. And he was treated as though his relationship with God, Jesus, was treated as though his relationship with God was dehumanized by sin so that our relationship with God could be rehumanized by his grace and love. The Lord himself is our righteousness. What does a city look like, one that is founded on a fully flourishing on those same principles? Well, you might say, doesn't the Bible denounce many cities as places of violence and oppression and unbelief? Don't the prophets in particular denounce the urban life of Israel? For example, you might cite Micah, 3, 9 through 11. Doesn't it say, Hear this, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Right. Right you are. You nailed it. It does say that about cities. But consider this. It's only because the Bible assumes that the city is something good, something which God has made, that the denunciations are so vehement. The Bible's attitude is never, hey, it's the city, so what do you expect? But rather, cities aren't supposed to be like this. Cities are now broken by sin, just as families and churches are. But we don't discard family life. We seek to renew it and restore it by God's grace. The same should be true of our cities, and true of Philadelphia. Not convinced? Consider Jesus' teaching on the subject. Jesus calls his followers to be a city on a hill, Matthew 5, 14. Jesus calls his disciples to be God's urban alternative, to form an alternate city within a city that's visible to all, 
on a hill. That kind of language, right? So Jesus teaches us that as Christians, we are to engage with the dominant culture of unbelief of the city, but in ways that reveal the distinctiveness of the values of the kingdom of God. As those who are being transformed by the gospel, we are at our very core different in the way that we understand money and the way that we understand relationships and vocation and human life and sexuality and so on. Every corner of our lives, because Jesus is who he said he is, we understand it differently. He changes things. Christians are truly residents of the city but we're not seeking power over or the approval of the dominant, unbelieving culture. Rather, we're seeking to show Philadelphia an alternative way of living and being fully rehumanized community together in Jesus. For example, because of Jesus' call to us, we will be actively involved in serving those around us in deeds of mercy and of justice. Consider this about our city. Uh, again, I was speaking with Diana Leeford this week, and these are some uh, statistics that we stumbled on together. Philadelphia has a very high poverty rate. Did you know it's 25%? 25%. What should it look like for us to engage with the dominant culture of Philadelphia regarding a high poverty rate? But in ways that reveal the distinctiveness and the values of the kingdom of God. Or how about this? Philadelphia has a very high crime rate. Very high. What should it look like for us to engage with the dominant culture regarding Philadelphia's crime, but in ways that reveal the distinctiveness and the values of the kingdom of heaven? Or this, Philadelphia has very serious levels of corruption. What should it look like for us to engage with the dominant culture of unbelief regarding corruption, but in ways that reveal the distinctiveness of the values of the kingdom of God? Philadelphia has super dysfunctional school systems. What does it look like for us to engage with that distinctively in a way that marks the kingdom of God? Really think about it. Really think about it. What should our justice and mercy ministries look like? What should our radical commitment to reconciliation to one another look like? What should our forgiveness and unity look like because of the kingdom of God? What should sharing our wealth look like? What should sharing our power look like? What should fighting disease and hunger and providing help for the sick and physically afflicted look like? What should doing our jobs with excellence, integrity, and love with an eye to helping others around us look like? The way that you live your life here now, if you know Jesus, should reflect the joy and the peace and the righteousness of your heavenly city. Here's a quote from uh, Harvey Kahn, which gets at it, I think, really well. Harvey Kahn was a a multidisciplined professor at Westminster for a number of years before he died. Perhaps the best analogy to describe all, all this that we're talking about is a model home. A model home. On the tract of earth's land purchased with blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. As a sample of what will be, he's erected a model home of what will eventually fill the urban neighborhood. And now he invites the world into that model home to take a look at what will be. The church is the occupant of that model home, inviting 
neighbors into its open door to Christ. Evangelism, you've heard that term. It's when the signs are put up saying, come in, look around. In this model home, we live out of our new lifestyles as citizens of the heavenly city that one day will come. We do not abandon our jobs or desert the city that is. We're to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which God has called us into exile. You should reflect the joy, and sec- the joy of the security and stability of your heavenly city as you live here. And you should reflect the joy of the peace and righteousness of your heavenly city. But finally, the way that you live your life here and now should reflect the joy of the knowledge and presence of God in your heavenly city. The joy of the knowledge and presence of God. Look, in verses 16 and 19 through 21, you see extraordinary things. God's presence is in the city, and his light is all that's needed. It says his light will be such sustenance that the sun and the moon won't be necessary. Won't be necessary. And this is the same thing that's described in Revelation 21. Look at 16. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. 19 and 20. The Lord will be your everlasting light. 21. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. There's a uh, scholar by the name of Tom Wright, and he wrote a book uh, a few years back called Surprised by Hope. Surprised by Hope. I recommend that you read it because it, it takes a look at our, our hope in the heavenly kingdom to come, the new city to come, and describes our place there from the early church uh, and from the early um, biblical writers. And this is a quote that I found in Surprised by Hope. Early Christians did not believe in progress. They did not think the world was getting better and better under its own steam. Or even under the steady influence of God, they knew God had to do something fresh to put it to rights. But neither did they believe that the world was getting worse and worse and that their task was to escape it altogether. They were not dualists. Since most people who think about these things today tend towards one or the other of those points of view, it comes as something of a surprise to discover that Christians held quite a different view. And he writes, they believed that God was doing, they believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. And what they believed adds up to a stunning picture of a future for which, so they insisted, the whole world was waiting on tiptoe. That urban future for which the whole world is waiting on tiptoe is the thing that God does fresh to put our current existence to rights. That freshness is because then we'll know God in a way that is unhindered by our sin and by our brokenness and by the brokenness around us, unhindered by death, unhindered by a lack of flourishing. Why? Because there we will know God without the hindrances of all those things, as he is. And he's made a place for us there. And look at all the ways in the passage talks about knowing God personally. You're knowing God in the new heavenly city as your Lord. You're knowing God in the new heavenly city as your Savior, as the one who has saved you from destruction. As your Redeemer, as the one who's bought you back with his own blood. As your Mighty One, the God of Jacob, faithful to his promises through all of redemptive history on your behalf as your everlasting light. 
Do you fear being alone? Do you fear darkness? This says there will be none. As the one who restores right relationship with you and himself, he calls you righteous. As permanent recipients of the land, your promised home forever. As the one who has planted you, as the one who hands produced you as his work, as the one who is to be glorified, the way you live your life here and now should reflect the joy and knowledge of presence of God in your heavenly city to come. Look, I think it's hard to jump, make the jump to this in our minds and in our hearts. Don't you think? Here are a couple of examples to help us get there. Again, thinking more personally and moving beyond that to citywide, citywide experience of that kind of joy. Have you ever experienced somebody lighting up a room when they walk in? Or somebody lighting up to the presence of somebody else walking into the room? Where the way their face is just overtaken and the way that they break out into uncontrollable smile and all their teeth are showing and they're overwhelmed and they can't speak? I was at a seminary class once with a guy who's probably not considered to be given to a lot of emotion. Very, very rigorous thinker. I think he has three PhDs. I think he's about seven degrees under his name. Very, very rigorous thinker. And he was lecturing in one class that I was in. And he was drawing at his board. And his son had been away for college. And he opened up the door quietly. And he did this to the class. And he had a grin on his face. And he snuck up. And he stood right beside his dad. And his dad turned around from the board smile. Just overwhelmed. He almost wept because he was so joyful at the way his son had lit up the room as he came in. He lit him up. He lit up with that experience. And when you first meet Jesus, it's like that, but it's burning bright inside of you, lighting up who you are inside out with an eternal smile, an eternal approval, an eternal, you will never be taken from my hand. You'll never be lost. You'll never be forsaken because I've done such mighty work on your behalf. I loved you so much that I'd, I bled and died for you. And I've secured it. And you know what? The gates of hell can't prevail against it. You are mine and I am yours. And that's the story. And you light up when the first time you meet Jesus with that from the inside out. Now imagine a city that is lit up by the presence of Jesus in the same way. And you together with all of his followers from every age are also lit up by his presence from the inside out. And who you are in him is bursting forth in resplendence. We're told in several places that it's, that it's hard to get our imaginations, maybe impossible to get our imaginations of the, all of the joys that he has in store for us. But if I can imagine something that good, can't God imagine something that much greater? for completing who we are in him, in the eternal city. So, the joy of knowledge and presence of God in your heavenly city. Friends, as citizens of Philadelphia, you and I are to live as citizens of the heavenly city that will one day come. Where are we going to get the power to live in such a way? I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the fact that there is one. There is one. Jesus. And he traveled to the great city, Jerusalem, to make his sacrifice for sin. And the book of Hebrews in the the New Testament tells us that the high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. 
But the bodies of those animals, of those offerings, are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Friends, look at Jesus. Look at the one who gave his life to make you, to make me, to make us. Citizens of our earthly city, citizens of God's eternal city. Look at him giving away himself for your sake so that you might give yourself away for the sake of the others around you, for the sake of changing the culture around you, for the sake of engaging your job and your vocation and your schooling and your education, your relationships in a completely different way than you might have before. Look at him as your security in that eternal city so that you're prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. Don't be cynical. Be joyful because your existence is going to be a joy from age to age because of the faithfulness of the mighty one, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're uh, feebly grasping around for images and pictures of the greatness of your love and what that will look like in its fullness when it comes to fruition, when every tear is wiped away, when heartache ceases, when injustice is put to death, when mercy flourishes, when the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and they're healed together, jointly worshiping you in your presence and peace and power, where the river of life flows through the center of the city, where there's artfulness to the way that the city is built and liveliness to our activity there and our culture there, because of what you're making us. Lord, this is beyond us, beyond our, our meager hope that we, that we live out of and try to live out of day to day. So we ask for you to light that in our hearts, to let us taste the joy of the things that are to come and let us rest on your faithfulness and put our trust in you and upon your promises so that we might begin to live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom right here and right now in our city of Philadelphia. Be with us as we do that. Protect us as we do that. Ignite us as we do that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.